You're listening to The Bookstorian Podcast, a podcast for book lovers and bookstagrammers. Hello and welcome to The Bookstorian Podcast. My name is Tegan and I am your host. On this episode, the series finale for season three, Jade from About a Book Podcast joins me to talk about her podcast as well as Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay. I had a really great time talking to Jade about the book and about some other like podcast pet peeves like how I keep saying the word so all the time. I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it and I think it's fairly safe to say that there's no spoilers. We seem to talk about the book a fair bit but we don't tend to talk about the plot points or the characters. We're much more fascinated in the actual myth and legend itself of the disappearance of the girls and then some of the historical and cultural context behind the story as well. I hope that you have enjoyed listening to season three and I hope you love this final episode. Hello, Jade, and welcome to the Bookstoring Podcast. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Good day, as they say. Good day is how they say. Do people actually say that in Australia? <laughs> now we say good day. Good day. Yeah, yeah, because people are always like top of the morning when they hear I'm Irish, <laughs> and it's like I've never heard an Irish person say that ever. Um, That's a stereotype yeah. for sure. I have said <laughs> that before. Digwich is hello in Irish. Oh, lovely. So, so, so I would say. I would say Diagwitch and you would say Diasmergwitch. So that means oh. God be with you. And then Diasmergwitch means God and Mary be with you. So it's very, <laughs> that sounds very lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Much nicer than g'day. <laughs> <laughs> g'day. Um, so I am really keen to talk to you today. We, um, we both have been um, in touch with each other for a while. I think we've both started our podcast around the same time as well. And it's been really nice chatting to you via Instagram or Bookstagram, as they say. And we seem to have a lot in common and we both really love history. So I think that's a nice connection that we have uh, with one another already. And we've been in touch for a little while discussing having a collaboration between our two podcasts. And it's taken us a little while to land on something. Like we we talked about Greek mythology for a little while. And um, I, I'm not 100% sure. I can't remember what some of the other ideas I floated with you were. But when I started reading Picnic at Hanging Rock recently by Joan Lindsay, I, there was just something about it. And I was like, I reckon this is up Jay Daly. And I think this could be a good book to do a collaboration about. You are a hundred percent right. I think this is the perfect book because it has, you know, that bit of kind of like truth pinned in it, you know, the bit of history because like Hanging Rock is also a real place and all that. And then I love the mystery of it. I'm not like huge into crime. So I was kind of going into this book thinking it would be a bit more crime, but like, as we'll discuss, it was a lot more just kind of like eerie mystery. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I always start my podcast with a little icebreaker question to help us um, sort of break the ice, get to know each other just that little bit more. So my question for you is what was the last book that you couldn't put down? Um, well, at the moment, so I'm not finished, I currently can't put it down. I started reading The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo the other day um, by, is it Terry Jenkins Reid who wrote that? Yeah, it's, I just, I heard so much hype about it on Bookstagram and it was on my list for a while and I had a lot of Audible credits stored up. So I gave that a listen and 
I'm, I'm only at the start of it, but I'm so intrigued. I'm like, I never, I always listen when I'm commuting and I never want to get off the bus because I'm like, no. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. I like every excuse I can to listen to it. I am walking in the house listening to it, doing chores, everything. Um, I'm really, I definitely recommend that to anybody listening that hasn't read it yet. So it's far, it's as good as the hype. Is, yes, I was just about to say, it is as good as the hype. I read that earlier this year and I would agree. Like I, It's such a page turner because you have the flits between the past and present. So you're getting mm-hmm. the, the present storyline, but then you've got to go back and read the past from um from evelyn's perspective and and learn about the particular husband at that time and uh, what her life is like so yeah yeah i, I completely agree um, and for anyone who doesn't know mm. sorry evelyn hugo like she it's a fictional character but i keep thinking like how is she not real because it's just so convincing that this wasn't you know a very like marilyn monroe type character so i'm loving it <laughs> have you read daisy jones and the six or malibu rising yet no, not yet. So, yeah, so lots they next are, on my list. they're going to be part of a quartet. So there's also another book on its way that's going to be set in the 90s. Mm. So some of the characters actually cross. Um, yeah, some of the characters actually are infused in some of the other stories as well. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah. So it's, um, it's very well done. I, re- I recently read uh, Malibu Rising and uh, some of the characters from Daisy Jones and the Six. And um, Don Adler, who's mentioned in Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, he's also mm-hmm. mentioned in Malibu Rising. Oh, I love yes. that. Okay, yes. I'm really excited now. And they're going to be all adapted into, like, movies and TV shows as well, aren't they? Yeah, well, seven, the uh, Daisy Jones and the Six is currently underway. I saw on Instagram the other day that the, the cast has actually started they're either filming or hanging out together, but there was mm-hmm. a little post like introducing the cast. Uh, but the, I know that one, that one for sure is definitely being developed by um, Hello Sunshine, like Reese Witherspoon's company or not her company oh, yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I love reading books that are like adapted into movies and TV shows because it's just very satisfying being able to judge them. So I'm very looking forward to eventually watching the adaption of Picnic at Hanging Rock, the um, the new one, particularly the new series. Um, it's I think it was played on the BBC, but I can't find it. And then it's on Amazon, but it's not available in Ireland. But I'll track ah. it down on some on some you know shady website. I'm sure. <laughs> I'll find it. <laughs> I think Fox, I don't know whether Fox tells a thing in Ireland, but um, yeah, Fox tells the other one that it's been on here in Australia. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my, la- my last book that I couldn't put down was The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. This is still one you haven't read yet, isn't it? Yeah, I'm really yep. excited for that as well. I have so many books on my list, but that one is definitely like up there. Yeah. And it, this one, like I've always loved ancient history, like always been quite fascinated and quite interested in it. And I don't know whether it's from like horrible histories, which I think (laughs) you guys would have there too. Yeah. That's what got me into history as well. (laughs) Yeah. So, so clever. So, um, or like watching Hercules. (laughs) (laughs) Disney. Um, so I've always, I've always really been interested in ancient Greece and Greece is somewhere that I haven't yet been. And it, it, I was looking through, I have like old school books and one of them is like, what do you want to do in the next 10 years? And I've, I've finished school uh, 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago now. And uh, visiting Greece was something that was on that list to do. And it, 
it's a bit sad that it hasn't happened yet. Um, <laughs> I also think being a drama teacher, Greece in particular, is is an is a place yeah. that particularly interests me because it's the birthplace of theatre. And yeah, so it's that ultimate fusion of like my love of history and my love of theatre kind of collide when you look at Greece. Um, and yeah. the Song of Achilles has just really, for me, like reinvigorated my love for this time, this time period, and the myths, and the characters, and theatre, and a whole bunch of things. So I'm on a bit of a rampage now. I've also read Pandora's <laughs> Jar by Natalie Haynes, Wonder and I desperately on. want to get my hands on A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes as well, which is about the women of the Trojan War. Have you read Circe? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And have you read like the Odyssey and all that too? No, I haven't. The Odyssey is really, I think that, yeah, I did a collab with Fairly Bookish and we read the Aeneid and the Odyssey. And I think we're going to do the uh, Iliad as well. Mm. I would say skip the Iliad and the Aeneid because it's a lot of just like fighting and scenes and stuff. Whereas like the Odyssey is like a good story with all the gods and like a lot of characters and it's like a really fun book. So I definitely recommend you check that one out. It's my favorite. I had to read it for school. And did fantastic. you, would you recommend reading it or listening to it? Um, I would recommend reading it um, because you can kind of like skim bits. It's easier to, <laughs> it's mm. easier to skim stuff when you're reading. And I definitely, you know, don't try to just get the Homer uh, version because it's like the original or whatever. I just go for a more like uh, modern uh, translation of it because it's just much easier to read and the context and that type of thing that they put in is helpful. That would probably be why, one of the reasons why I haven't picked it up. I reckon on my shelves, because I, I studied history in uni, that I would I would have once upon a time had a copy of either the Iliad or the Odyssey, but mm-hmm. wouldn't have uh, picked it up purely because it just, the language barrier would have been quite difficult. Yeah. So the Odyssey is like the original and then the Aeneid was kind of like a, almost like a fan fiction that was commissioned by like the emperor and they he's kind of like a character in it um and the whole kind of story of the novel is kind of showing that he's like descended from like the gods or whatever but um yeah the odyssey is definitely one you should pick up excellent but i going that going to greece would be a big going to greece would be a big undertaking for you right because you're all the way in australia yes because for me like that'd be like a two-hour flight or something yeah <laughs> so i should really need to get on that going at some point yeah it's like a it's at least like 22 23 hours because we would have to get so um my husband and i when we got married well we were meant to get married last year long story short mm-hmm. covid ruined it we got married yeah. this year instead but we'd actually booked a honeymoon Um, and we were flying into Rome and doing like a big Europe trip and then flying back out of Rome. And, um, that would have taken, so it takes us about, uh, seven to 10 hours to get to Singapore. Um, Mm. and then we have to go from Singapore directly to like either Rome or, or then Dubai and then Rome or whatever it might be. So yeah, it's a, it's a good day of travel to get there and sitting on a plane. I think the longest plane trip I've probably sat on is about 13 or 14 hours. Like, Oh wow. I've never (laughs) had to do that. Thankfully. (laughs) Yeah. Europe is just like, it's just like hopping over on the plane. It's really handy. (laughs) Yes. You can go interrailing, just go to all the countries, but um, yeah, you'll get there someday. Whereas it would take us, like it takes us, so I'm in Brisbane. I think if mm-hmm. we fly to Perth, which is the other side of the country, that's six hours. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Because you can travel up and down Ireland in like mm. six hours or something like that. Yeah. It, probably less. But, but um, I was really excited um, to do this. 
Mm. I was going to say, we can get to New Zealand in like three hours. So we can get to another country in Brisbane anyway. We can get to another country quicker than we can get across our own country. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I was really excited to just collab with you because um, I have like recently, I've just been like, I guess, consuming kind of uh, some Australian like media recently. Like I listened to another Australian podcast um called the art of trying it's just like a mom and a son and they just talk about stuff um and then they you know talk about life in australia that type of thing and then i've been watching i don't know if it's available on your netflix but me and my sister have been binge watching a show called um instant hotel which is kind of like (laughs) yeah reviewing all the like airbnbs or whatever in australia and that's been fun um and then my dad is actually an australian citizen so um he loves australia um, but I've never gone. But um, yeah, it was funny to read it. Oh wow! Recognize. Was your yeah. was your dad born here, or was he? Does he have like a bit of a dual citizenship? Um, I think he was. Yeah, I think he was born in Australia, and then, yeah, I think maybe one of his parents has some type of link to Australia. Um, I'm not too sure, but <laughs> it's very common yeah. for people in Australia too to have ties back to Ireland. Like my. Um, like my my mum's family has ties back to Ireland and like England and Scotland mm. and Wales, and you can probably yeah. tell from my pale fluorescent skin um, <laughs> <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, um, as we both acknowledge, we both have podcasts. So, can you describe your podcast, which is about a book, to my listeners? Yeah. So, um, just a bit of background on me. I studied English and history in college, so I love books and I love history. And I graduated and I really wanted to continue learning. So um, that makes me feel very nerdy and pretentious. But um, <laughs> whenever I read a book, I was always really interested. You know, if I was reading a book or like reading poetry for school, I was really interested in um, learning about the author behind it and what inspired it and, you know, the themes in it. So I thought of the idea of kind of talking more about the history behind books. So that way I could kind of talk about two things I love. So, for example, in my Frankenstein episode, I talked all about Mary Shelley's life because her life's even more interesting than Frankenstein. Like she had a crazy life. So I talk all about her life and how that inspired her book. We talked about uh, Scott Fitzgerald. He was a great writer, but he was kind of a jerk, not a great husband. So I talk all about that in that episode. And um, it's a newish podcast. Then I am, it'll be a year in November, but um, I'm getting ready for my 10th episode. So <laughs> I've been very busy of late, but um, it's definitely a passion project. You know, I do it when I find a book I really enjoy. So, um, you know, sometimes a bit of a gap there if I'm busy not reading too much, but yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the beauty of what you do as well is that you, you sound passionate about the topics that you are talking about through um, through the speaker when I'm listening. So I think that definitely oh, makes good. a difference. Yeah, definitely. But I think you have a laugh at yourself as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's only me doing the podcast. I haven't gotten any guests on yet per se, because I guess I'm just a bit like daunted by trying to. You had your uh, grandfather. You know. Yeah, that's true. He's my only guest on it so far. But, um, yeah. So because it's only me and the mic, I usually have to, you know, throw in some funny sound bites or just kind of have a laugh at myself. But, um, you know, for future hopes for the podcast, um, I probably want to get more guests on and maybe go more into the realm of like mythology and folklore as well, because um, I work in a folklore museum. So I'm really interested in that. Yeah, I really love um your folklore episode because that was the one that you did with your grandfather like I yeah. learned a lot about Ireland and I have read um 
The Good People by Hannah Kent. And uh, that's, yeah, set in Ireland and um, is about the idea of like a changeling um, taking away the, one of the, the character, the main character taking away her son. Um, So that, yeah, I, I find that a really, um, really interesting. And uh, after listening to that episode, that was one of the things that I thought, maybe Picnic at Hanging Rock could be that one that we actually talk about. So I would, um, I would definitely say Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay is a canonical Australian text. It is one that people know about, but then they don't even necessarily know that it is a book. Like people honestly think it is a myth or a legend. Um, Mm. They don't realize that it is, um, it is a fictional work. Um, and I think that's that spooky, mysterious, like open-ended ending is the reason why people think that way about this story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Even the start of it saying like, oh, this is the truth or is a fiction. It's up for you to decide type of thing. Uh, I read somewhere that it was like the original Blair Witch Project, you know, the <laughs> way like at the start of every horror movie now, it says like, this is a true story based on true events. But like, <laughs> back then this was like it came out in like the what was it the 1960s was it yeah. yeah so back then that was more of an original more of an original idea mm-hmm. to pretend that's real and um I was doing a bit of research on Joan Lindsay and before then she wrote um a book it was kind of like um a satirical travel guide um so she was pretending that she was like you know these two English girls traveling around and she wrote like fake travel journals and she put in like you know fake typos and stuff and you know all the slang and you know um people thought that was kind of like a real travel journal as well and she was just having the crack so obviously she <laughs> likes to mess with her readers a lot <laughs> yeah and good on her all the power to her especially being a female author in australia during that time period there wouldn't have been a whole yeah. lot of them being published Sorry, and but- she actually she published that under a placebo uh, not a placebo a um pseudonym yes as well <laughs> so, <laughs> i always get those two words mixed up in my head for some reason um she <laughs> published it under a pseudonym so i think picnic at hanging rock it might have been the first mm. one under her own name i'm not sure is either the first or the second but um that's something interesting as well to note i guess yeah. So I thought I would start by giving a little um, introduction to the book in case there's anyone who hasn't um, read it yet. So Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay is set in, the, in 1900 Victoria, Australia. A group of girls from Appleyard College accompanied by their teachers set off for a leisurely day with, their, with them for a picnic at Hanging Rock. Donned in their bonnets, gloves and pretty day dresses, there is much excitement as an ominous as ominous clouds form in the sky it is clear that not all will go as planned an australian folklore tale which is still met with the question did they ever find those girls picking at hanging rock explores the reverberations the disappearance of three girls and their teacher has on the community the search for meaning the clinging to hope and the madness that ensues when questions go unanswered so jade Mm. how did picnic at hanging rock make you feel Oh, I was really kind of spooked by it. I was very intrigued. It really reminded me, I don't know if you've seen the movies, but um, Woman in Black or like uh, Crimson Peaks are both kind of like period kind of, I wouldn't say horror movies, but kind of that suspenseful thriller type of feel. Um, I was really intrigued because it, you know, will say something like, 
oh, she saw a mysterious red cloud in the sky. And then it's just like not mentioned ever again. And you go into the book as well, knowing that you don't find out what happens to the girls. So it's like, you know, you're going to be kind of like not disappointed in the end, but you're not going to get answers. And I think it's also good to kind of point out that we both read the book coming from different backgrounds. So you read it because you were teaching it to a class, weren't you? You were doing the play of it, right? Yeah. And um, then I read it. I, well, I actually listened to the audiobook. So I think if I could turn back time, I would, um, <laughs> I would just read it instead of actually listening to it because, you know, I think you can kind of pick up more on the subtle hints and more of the subtle dialogue and that imagery and that type of thing if you actually physically read it. Um, but I enjoyed listening to the Australian accent because it kind of got me more into that world than if I was just reading it in my head. So yeah, it ha- yeah it would have helped to set the setting of I am listening to a book that is set in a completely different place to where I live. I think um, for me, the book just sort of captures the emotion and the atmosphere of the Australian bush. Like it represents a, a really harsh reality that people living still quite remotely today, let alone um, the early 19th and 20th centuries, just that remoteness and that sense of eeriness um, was really well captured. Like I, my partner and I, and a, and a bunch of our friends, we really like to go camping um, and we've been up to the tip of Australia, which is quite a remote trip to do. Like you go hours without seeing other people. You might stay at a campsite one night, you are the only people around and it would take hours to get to any kind mm-hmm. of medical help. Like there's, you don't have phone reception. Like it's, it's a really like sense of loneliness um, yeah. and, a, and just this vastness and feeling like a tiny, 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 tiny person. And it's also easy to see how quickly a landscape could swallow up a person or in this case. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Mm, so you can attest to this. Yeah. You can attest to this, but I was um, kind of reading descriptions of the Australian bush and it was saying, because like, you know, the ground is brown, the, you know, the foliage is brown. It can look very like one dimensional. So it's very easy to kind of imagine that you're seeing things or that like your mind's playing tricks on you or kind of like that depth perception is a bit different in the bush. So that really adds to like the, the feel of the place. And then to have this like big structure of the rock as well that exists. Um, and when we quite often, so one of the styles of theater that I'm studying, and as you, as you recognize that like that's the first, re- the, the reason why I picked up the book in the first place was because Picnic at Hanging Rock was a play text that I was interested in studying with my senior drama students. And the the rock itself becomes a character and that is uh, that it that is a feature of theater but i also think it's a feature of australian gothic literature of which picnic at hanging rock fits the bill uh, immensely so but this we see it in the in the in the play but we also see it in the book that the rock almost has this like calling quality to people and makes them feel sleepy or disorientated or not themselves and i think that also feeds into that remoteness of the bush as well that yeah you start hallucinating that oh is this rock like actually a person like um i haven't experienced that because most of the time i've had plenty of food and water and (laughs) things like that but if you were genuinely stuck out in the desert and it was really bloody hot like you could imagine that yeah people could start imagining these these like figures as um 
the rock figures as people or other beings. But yeah, I really liked what you said about the rock being like a person. And even like the descriptions of how they were like really called to the rock and how the rock wouldn't leave their mind. And then there was descriptions of them climbing on the rock, but it was as if they were like sliding on carpet. So yeah, the rock was, it definitely seemed like another planet or very like otherworldly. Yeah, certainly. So you mentioned before that you've done a little bit of research into Joan Lindsay. Um, And one of the things that she does do is she invites us as readers at the start of the text to make a decision about whether or not the events are true. So I'll just read the little excerpt because it's only like three sentences long and it says, whether picnic at hanging rock is fact or fiction, my readers must decide for themselves. As the fateful picnic took place in the year 1900 and all the characters who appear in this book are long since dead, it hardly seems important. So do you think the story is real? I, I would like to believe that it is. I mean, it'd be very sad if it was real. But, um, you know, it just adds that mystery, especially the way the idea came to her in a dream. It just, it would make a fantastic, like, true story, you know, if it was real. We didn't know the answers. Um, but sadly, I think it was just very good marketing. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really like the way in every interview while she was alive, she never gave away if it was true or not. Um, I thought that was very clever. But... I looked into it and there's no evidence of Apple Yard College being real. The only thing that seems real is that there is an actual rock there. But I would like to believe it's real. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I, I tend to agree. Like, I, I don't seem to think it's true. Like, I just think it's been a beautiful imagination. And people who visit in the who, people who have visited the rock have said that it is almost as if like the um, it. People who have visited the rock have acknowledged how easy it would be to get lost within the formation itself. Because when you um, like Google it or have a look at a picture of it, like it's quite a big um, monolithic formation. So it would be very easily to get like lost or trapped in these rocks. So I certainly think it's been a quite creative way of bringing in that Australian landscape and making people believe that it could potentially be real. Um, So even though I don't believe the story is true, I can see why people think it is. Australian folklore, Australian stories, real stories of people walking off into the bush or wandering off into the bush, traveling out and never being seen again is a very real reality that um, Australians have lived for for thousands of years. So you can see why it could be real. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that because I've seen I've only seen kind of Australian horror films like Wolf Creek where it's, you know, people camping and then like a guy with a chainsaw comes. But yeah, would you say that people really do get lost out in the wilderness like that? Definitely. Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah. So that definitely adds to the realism of it. And I think, you know, just as we were talking about there, the descriptions of the nature and the rock and everything, I think they were, this is my theory, but I think they were so like well done in the book because Joan Lindsay herself comes from like an artist background so you know she obviously has that eye for detail and that appreciation for nature and I was also um looking a bit into her and I said that she was very much a spiritualist so she was very into like the land as being alive and having kind of um a magical pull almost and having these um mystical elements to it so I think that really did influence the book yeah, you can certainly see those echoings of, of somebody who felt like they had a really good grapple on um, Australia as a, as a location and as a place. 
So how does the story of Picnic at Hanging Rock, so the idea of like children disappearing into the bush and never being seen again, or even women or adults, compare to Irish myths? Uh, Well, I talked about this in my um, fairy podcast that we were talking about earlier, but in Ireland, we have things called fairy hills or fairy forts. And these are stone structures that date back to, like they predate the pyramids, they're ancient. And we're not really sure what they were used for, maybe as burial tombs, maybe to hide treasures or places of worship. But it's estimated that there is around 40,000 of these fairy hills all around Ireland and they're known as very sacred places that's the main reason why there are so many of them still today and it was thought that if you were a farmer and you let your cattle graze in a field or there is a fairy hill your cattle could get sick or die or if you were to knock down a fairy hill and build a house or a business you get bad luck Um, and there's also a very well-known myth i guess in ireland of the curse of tara And this was back in 2007, so not even that long ago for people to be superstitious. Um, It was when they were building the M3 motorway. They had to cut across and destroy a few fairy hills. And then after this, the Minister of the Environment that was involved, he got held up by an armed gang. Um, One of the construction workers may die because a tree fell on them. One of the other people involved got trapped in a building in a place called Fairy House, which I think is very funny. Well, not funny, but, you know, very mysterious. And then I don't know much about bees, but in the area there was a big um, rise in the amount of beehives, um, which would be unusual for that area. And it's thought that beehives were um, nature's revenge on humanity or something like that. It was like a sign that the earth was angry. So there's a lot of stories in Irish folklore of people tampering with these um, environments and then getting punished for it. And then as far as missing people goes, um, there is, you talked about it earlier in a book you read, but there's changelings. So it's the idea of maybe if somebody was, you know, walking around a fairy hill or if you did something to anger the fairies and then they suddenly started acting different. You know, maybe they had a a quicker temper, maybe they're much more hungry, or maybe they just looked a bit different. It was thought that they could be a changeling, which is when a human gets replaced by an otherworld being. Um, It sounds kind of, you know, a bit crazy now that Irish people believed in this, but like many people still do today. You know, I work in the Folklore Museum and there's many stories leading up to like, not even too long ago about people believing in this, so. That definitely reminded me of Picnic and Hanging Rock. Yeah, certainly. And especially that that element of questioning whether or not you believe in it and um, whether or not you believe it to be true. Um, so you've mentioned Joan Lindsay a few times, and I definitely think you've done a lot more research into her than I have. But um, in particular, one thing I wanted to talk about was that she believed the story came to her in a dream. And we're actually met with a fair few characters feeling pretty sleepy when they get near the rock. Like, you know, 80 years? Am I saying, no, that's wrong, 60 years. Let me say that again. Uh, With a book that has been around for 60 years and is still very prevalent um, and well-known within Australia, what do you think about that whole idea about writing from a dream? 
I'm bloody jealous. I wish I got ideas for classic novels from my dreams. I just dream about work and school and really mundane things like how lucky is she to get this amazing idea in a dream? And then as well, I was researching and it only took her in two weeks to write the book. Like, are you kidding? That's crazy. And even I know that um, Steven Spielberg gets a lot of ideas for his movies through dreams as well. And honestly, I am so jealous. I wish there's a, a way to train my brain or something and get an idea like that. Uh, it's fantastic. But, you know, I, I don't mean to be a hater or to, you know, do anything but she seems like a very you know she likes messing with people so I think saying that she this came to her in a dream adds that whole mystery element as well so maybe that bit you know could be a bit fabricated maybe she just dreamt about a school and then she made up the rest or maybe she dreamt about the rock and made up the rest um but who knows because it does happen but just because you know she's made up a few things in the past I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> yes I I agree I I instantly think the same thing where I was like, yes, how cool would that be that I can just wake up tomorrow and I'd have this great idea for a book. So it's certainly, um, yeah, it's quite intriguing about her, but I like that you've made that connection with the idea. She's obviously spun a few tales and is a very good storyteller. So I would not be surprised if this is also a story. So one of the, I always say so, so is always the way that I segue into everything. And when I edit my podcast, it drives me crazy. <laughs> me too. Me too. Don't worry. I don't say like or all much, but I always say, and so a lot, even when I'm storytelling and it works. <laughs> my first few episodes, I said, um, so much like that. I was cutting it out all the time, but now that I'm, I like, this will be my 30th episode, I think 31st episode. Now that I'm further into it, I've stopped myself. Like I still say it a few times, but it's nowhere near as bad as it could be or like a drinking game where someone would get absolutely pissed off listening to me saying um all the time. <laughs> so I just did it again. <laughs> One of the quotes that I particularly resonated with from the book is this. As always in matters surpassing human interest, those who knew nothing, whatever, either at first or even secondhand were the most empathetic in expressing their opinions, which are well known to have a way of turning into established facts overnight. So when I read that quote, I resonated with it with our current times because there's so many people at the moment who are reading something on Facebook or reading it on another platform or hearing about it through some other fake news avenue and eschewing it into a fact that isn't a fact. Like it, the difference between fact and opinion is something that's like infuriating for me at the moment. Um, or even so like claiming to do their own research, but then saying, oh yeah, this supports me, but they haven't actually looked further afield. So that quote in particular, yeah, really resonated with me and potentially brought this text that existed in the 1960s that was about the early 1900s actually made it a little bit more modern with its connection. Did, uh, did you have a similar feel with that quote at all? Yeah, that was such a good connection you make. It kind of shows that human nature never really changes, does it? People are always going to be just jumping to conclusions and things like that. But yeah, not even talking about like, 
you know, I hate to bring it up, but the vaccine and all that mm. coronavirus. So I was trying to get through the laps without mentioning it. But even at that, you know, even in other matters of, you know, elections and that type of thing, people are always jumping to conclusions. And I mean, it's very easy to do that. You know, you mm. can be very easily influenced, especially if it's someone that, you know, a family member or something, because you think that, you know, they have their best interests at heart and all that. But um, I think, you know, both of us coming from like an interest in history, you kind of learn how to decipher and how to kind of like research. But um, yeah, it's very funny that human nature doesn't seem to change in that way. Yeah. But that's what I mean. That that was one of the quotes that kind of went over my head since I was listening to it. I think I would have picked up a lot and a, a lot more on that if I was reading the book. So if anybody's listening and they're thinking of reading it, I'd recommend picking up the physical book. It is very tiny. Like it's a very teeny tiny book. I think mm. I read it in about two days. So it's um it's definitely very doable, that's for sure. Um one thing that I do definitely want to make sure we speak about before we end the podcast was uh, about the gap that is quite obvious for me reading it as an Australian woman. And the gap is that the history of our First Nations people has primarily been ignored in the book. And uh, when Jade and I first discussed the book, I did say to her, I'm like, it's not surprising because during the 1960s, people wouldn't have considered what the indigenous, what the indigenous Australians perspective would have been on the rock. They wouldn't have considered it to be a place of um, a, a, a sacred place or uh, a place that would have had a, a much deeper connection. So when we sort of strip back this story, because that is what Hanging Rock is known as to majority of Australians today. Um, when we strip all that back, this is actually uh, what uh, Hanging Rock means to Indigenous people. And I think that this is in, important for me to sort of acknowledge this um, in the next little bit of the podcast. So it is um, a sacred and prehistoric volcanic rock formation. And it's it's known for its unusual shapes and distinctive ridges. And if you're listening, I definitely encourage you to give it a quick little Google and have a look at it for yourself because I'm no Joan Lindsay with describing landscapes. Um, but yes, it is. It's certainly, it's a real place. Um, it's located Northwest of Melbourne and it's, it's over 6 million years old. And um, if, if you really want to go into the geographical stuff, go for it. But that's not really my forte. But essentially when we, so we, we think about it as a, as a sacred place, first and foremost, we think about it as a place that has uh, formed and, and been geographically created. So it's not a man-made place by any means. And um, Hanging Rock itself, and I'm still saying Hanging Rock because I'm not too sure what the uh, Indigenous term for it would be or the Australian Indigenous term would be, but essentially it was a meeting place for four different um, Indigenous tribes and uh, there are still a variety of tribes that are considered custodians of it, so there's three in particular. And um, the site itself was actually used for sacred ceremonies and initiations um, and they, they do say that the um, original custodians of the land actually avoided venturing up to the rock summit because they believed it to be in inhabited by evil spirits. Um, so that's, I think that's quite interesting when you look at that like historical and cultural um, like lens behind the rock itself. And um, even though I feel like it is largely ignored in Picnic at Hanging Rock, potentially there there are some sort of elements there that infuses it with the idea of evil spirits being there and, and potentially the idea that white people were there having a picnic on, on sacred land. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, I was reading some interpretations of it, and some people think because of like the themes of order and chaos, that you know, with the kind of orderly girls and going to like the wild landscape, that it could be kind of an anti-colonial type of message. But I think that's giving Joan Lindsay too much credit, to be honest. Um, and there's also some connections saying that. Joan Lindsay felt very connected. She had the same connection to the earth as these indigenous people did. I think that's going a bit too, you know, far personally, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, she is certainly being like a society woman. It probably would have been, um, it probably would have been quite frowned upon had she have come out and said, well, actually I did this because I, I, I wanted to speak about anti-colonialism. So she could, she could have very well have put the layers in there for the subtle meaning behind it. But yeah, she probably wouldn't have spoken about it. That's for sure. So yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for bringing this book to like my attention, I guess, because I hadn't heard of it when I was talking to other people about it, that I was reading it. Everyone mm. seemed to know what it was, but I firstly didn't. And I think this is the first Australian book that I've read as well. So yeah cool great introduction yeah Yeah. just for you know um do you have any other recommendations of australian authors or australian uh depends in terms of like there's a few that i absolutely love so um jasper jones is one that i really love by craig sylvie uh that is it's kind of like an australian version of to kill a mockingbird Ah, okay. Is what I'm going to suggest. So that's fantastic. And it's uh, very like coming of age, but it also explores like big issues of racism, um, domestic violence, and a, a rural Australian town during the 1970s and how they deal with uh, race, how they deal with class. Um, yeah, it's, it's really good. It's also a play. <laughs> um, and if you like a thriller, If you Mm -hmm. like a thriller, I would say The Dry by Jane Harper. So it is also really atmospheric, like Picnic at Hanging Rock, where it's sort of set quite remotely. um, And a detective, Aaron Fork, is um, he's contacted by his childhood friend's father because his childhood friend is said to have committed suicide and killed his family. However, the childhood friend's father, Mr. Hadler, I'll call him because I can't remember his first name. <laughs> he, um, he believes that like, that's not the case and, and invites Aaron Falk, the detective, to come into town and, and work out whether or not it is the case. So they're probably two, they would definitely be two of my go-tos. <laughs> Fantastic, thanks. <laughs> okay. Is there any other Irish books I should read? Because as I said, I've read The Good People, but Hannah Kent's actually an Australian Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I have read The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donoghue. That's set in Ireland. Uh, yeah. And I really liked that. Um, yeah. Is there oh, any that I should know? going blank now. <laughs> um, if you want something that's funny, like that kind of sums up Irish humour, I'd always recommend Roddy Doyle. He has a lot of great books. Um, my favourite would be The Snapper. It's about a, a young girl that gets pregnant. Um, and so it's kind of like Roddy Doyle takes very serious themes and then he makes them kind of like funny, but not like in a disrespectful way. It's kind of, see, Irish humour, we always kind of like make fun of things that might be sad. I guess it's like the way of Irish people cope with things because Irish people have had a lot of bad luck as it goes through, you know, history. Um, then if you're looking for something romantic, I would say Cecilia O'Hearn. She writes a lot of um, great mm. romance books. Have you seen the movie Love Rosie? 
No, but I've seen is P.S. I love P.S. I love you is one of hers. Yes. It? Yeah, I've seen oh, that. Oh yeah. So she wrote that, <laughs> and then the movie did a horrible job. They mispronounced all the places in Ireland <laughs> and just terrible Irish accents. But the actual book is very good. So thank you so much for joining me on the Bookstoring Podcast today, Jade. Thank you. I have enjoyed this so much and I'd love to collab again in the future once we find the perfect book. You have been listening to the Bookstoring Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and follow me on Instagram at the Bookstoring Podcast. So that is it for season three of the Bookstorian podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and any others that you have along the way. Make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to the podcast and follow me on Instagram at thebookstorianpodcast.com. If you are interested in being a guest on season four or you have a bookstagrammer or other book influencer that you would love for me to interview, please reach out. You can either do this via the DMs on Instagram or you can find my email in the show notes.